I'm Richard Locke, Provost of Brown University, and this is Faculty in Focus, where I talk with some of Brown's most compelling faculty about the stories behind their research. Today, I'm talking with Professor Diane Lipscomb, Director of the Kearney Institute for Brain Science at Brown. The Kearney Institute is a hub of researchers from multiple disciplines, all focused on fueling scientific breakthroughs in conditions such as epilepsy, autism, and depression. Diane has done this type of research herself for more than 30 years. She is also the current president of the International Society for Neuroscience. Diane, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. So what sparked your interest in science? I'm pretty sure I was a scientist from quite a very young age, but I wouldn't have had any idea about what that meant. And the way that I would say I was influenced very strongly was a lot of reading. I read detective novels. That was my favorite. I just loved trying to solve those mysteries. Before the end of the book, I was always wrong. And I always loved doing things with my hands, fixing, painting, rewiring plugs around the house if my parents let me, which they usually did because I usually did it pretty well. I would also really stress the importance of my teachers. Even back to when I was about five or six, I remember an incredible teacher I had, Mr. Evans, and he really pushed me to be the best person I could be. He really influenced me as well as my high school teachers. I have vivid memories of them. They were incredible. Now, you mentioned your parents, and neither one of your parents went to college. Your mom was a secretary and your father was a printer. As a child, What did you imagine your future would look like? That's a very hard question to answer. The the life I live now, I couldn't even begin to imagine. It didn't exist for me. Would you have been surprised by where you are now? Yes, I would be very surprised. But I also wouldn't really understand what that was. So I would say this is just kind of the dream position, although I didn't know it existed then. So you loved science and got a lot of encouragement from your teachers, but you barely graduated high school. What happened? Another hard question, but an interesting one. (laughs) I think what happened was I was fairly disillusioned by what I couldn't see. I mean, I, I really didn't see the point in going to school, and I'm going to apologize to everybody because I really would never say that. And I believe so, so deeply that education is so incredibly important. But at that time, as a 17-year-old, it it lost value for me. And I really, really didn't see the point of going to school. And so I, I actually didn't go that much. And so the grades weren't really good enough to allow me to go to the kind of university that I began to think about and that my teachers had been really stressing to me over and over that I had a great future ahead of me. But somehow, after high school, you found your way into your future. And I think I heard that you found it through the want ads. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So when I finished uh, school, you know, I wasn't destined to go to university at that point. And so I looked through the ads. It was a local newspaper. And I read about being a technician in a drug company, actually a research institute, I should say. And I applied. And then I got a call back and I got an interview there. And that was really the beginning of my scientific career. 
I made tea for people <laughs> to begin with. But they rapidly put me to work and I was doing research and I loved it. It was intellectually challenging. It was a discovery to discover how things worked. I felt like I was doing experiments at the frontier of knowledge. The, the group made me feel like that. It was exciting. It was really exciting. Now, your mentor at the Wellcome Research Laboratories, Sir James Black, later won the Nobel Prize for drugs he invented to prevent heart attack after traumatic events. In the simplest of terms, how do those drugs work? Jim Black was just a giant of a scientist and a wonderful person. And so I will tell you about what he discovered, but I'd love to tell you about him as a person too, because that's very important to convey the whole picture. So what he did was to discover drugs that prevented the kind of toxic impact of stress on the heart. So the principle is that our bodies make hormones and those hormones are released during times of, for example, stress, where we need to pump a lot of blood into certain vital organs for the fight-flight response. And in individuals who are healthy, that's great. But in individuals who have compromised cardiovascular system or compromised heart, that can be incredibly damaging. So it puts the heart under stress that, that it just can't handle. So he understood that concept and he developed drugs that prevented the action of those endogenous hormones, adrenaline, for example. And so those, those drugs, which we refer to as antagonists, can be thought of as preventing, for example, the, if the key is the agonist and the keyhole is the receptor on, a, on an organ, on the heart, the agonist goes in, the key turns, and that drives a response. If you can fill the keyhole with some blocker, with an antagonist, then the agonist or the key can't get in and act. So that was really the, the principles of the drugs that he created. Tell us more about him and how his mentorship sort of guided you back to the university. So in addition to working and doing research, I went to night school. That was quite fun, but I was at a community college in Kent. And then Jim Black called me into his office and asked me what I wanted to do with my life. And I wasn't really expecting that question from him. But he had heard from the group that I was really good in the lab, and he felt that I had a really great future. I remember him asking me, did I want to work to be able to live, or that there was a future for me to be able to just enjoy every day when I got up, to go in, to do research, to do discovery, to be a scientist, and that that was a future that I could have. How did you get from there to university? Well, after I talked to Jim Black and I had told him I really loved being a scientist, young as I was then, he contacted University College London. He had been a chair of the department there in pharmacology previously, and he encouraged them to interview me. And so I went to London. I interviewed with the faculty there in the department, and they offered me a position to go to college, I mean, within a few weeks. And so suddenly the door was open. It was uh, something that he didn't have to do for me. I don't think it changed his life, but that was the kind of person he was, and it has really influenced me in thinking about how much responsibility we have as educators to, to reach out as often as we can, because it makes a difference. Yeah, it does make a difference. Now, once you landed at University College London, 
You continued to study pharmacology and stayed there for your PhD. But during this time, the field itself was evolving. So sticking with the key and lock analogy that you mentioned earlier, what were you and other researchers discovering about how cells function? Once we understand the functioning of, of organs in the body and how hormones work, then we can design and develop new compounds to kind of co-opt those signaling pathways, those natural pathways, to give organs the, the edge, right? If, if an organ's failing, then intervene and prevent those stressful mediators that can be quite toxic and damaging in compromised conditions. So that whole concept continued. At the time that I was an undergraduate and then a graduate student, what started to open up was the possibility of, of working in the nervous system and really applying those same approaches and methodologies to then tweaking the signaling within the nervous system. This might seem like a natural leap, but technically these were great challenges actually to us. The way I would describe it is you, you know what the heart is and the heart is beating. And so if one is interested in studying the heart, you can measure the strength of heart contractility and you can also measure the rate of the beating of the heart. What do you measure in the brain? And so that's one challenge is what, what is the output that one is measuring? And so we've become very good at developing tools and technologies to be able to measure output. And so that became necessary first step in order to be able to start to think about which part of the nervous system would be important to tone down or, or tone up in certain conditions. And so that key and that lock analogy fits where the leap, I'd say, was made during the time that I was an undergraduate and a graduate student was applying that thinking to, to the nervous system and the brain. You've spent most of your career studying calcium ion channels. What are these channels and why are they so important? When I graduated and I started my postdoc at Yale, I started to study calcium ion channels. These are so critically important as gateways for calcium ions to enter all cells. Why is that interesting? Well, that's interesting because calcium is the universal ubiquitous messenger in all cells, meaning muscles contract because calcium is released inside cells. There's transmission of electrical signals through the nervous system because calcium is released inside cells. Cells die because there's too much calcium and neurons grow and they find their right targets because there's calcium. So this is really the principal chemical messenger of a huge number of different cell functions. So I can go back to the key and the lock analogy. Calcium ion channels are not part of the key or the lock, but when the lock is turned, then the calcium channels are either opened more uh, often or closed. So the turning of the lock controls the activity of the calcium ion channels. The key is an agonist, adrenaline. The lock is the receptor. And then they couple to the calcium channel. So I'm moving further downstream from the signaling pathway that I used to study, but getting to the principal signaling molecule that is controlling cell function. So in 2016, you became the director of the Brown Institute for Brain Science, now known as the Carney Institute for Brain Science. What's your vision for the center? We're focused on the people bringing in great researchers. We want them to come to Brown and do the best research they possibly can do to fulfill their potential. And we want to create a community where anything and everything is possible with regard to advancing research. The thing I want to stress about 
research and the importance of research as well is that the basic research is absolutely fundamental to being able to then apply knowledge to improve society. So some of that research is not directed toward a particular disease or a particular disorder, but ultimately can be the, the key that really opens the lock to understanding how perhaps another group or perhaps a group at Brown can develop treatments for disorders. This is critical, and there's incredible work going on here at Brown in this area of basic research. The collaborative potential here is huge. We have a great group of faculty who are already collaborating, but I don't think that we've hit the plateau there yet. Good. So, Dan, tell me about some of the most exciting projects that are going on at the Kearney Institute these days. The faculty here and the students here have this great sense of anything being possible. So there's been just a lot of very exciting research going on here. For example, there's a group who is now focused on taking information from the human brain to be able to directly stimulate muscles of individuals who are paralyzed. That's one area. Being able to think about non-invasive assessment of brain function and cognition, that's another big area that the group at Kanye are extremely good at, and the application there would be in diagnosing uh, psychiatric disorders, um, other neurological disorders, as well as assessing the efficacy of treatment. And so there's a big group there that are interested in that. Sometimes the pace of science is slow. It's built on deliberate, focused research. What keeps you motivated? Oh, I love what I do, the passion. You know you'll discover something <laughs> at some point. Of course it's hard, of course. You have hypotheses and you get very passionately focused on that and then one does an experiment or in my case it's usually a graduate student or a postdoc and they come back with something I was completely not expecting. It wasn't even in part of the hypothesis to begin with. That actually turns out to be when things get interesting. And so the pace is, of course, slow if you, one wants to do really rigorous science. But I've learned to really embrace results that I'm completely not expecting because I know, based on things that we've done in the past, that you have to follow the data and you have to follow the results because you can fool yourself a lot and you can become very passionate about something where there's no data <laughs> to support it. But if you open your eyes and really allow the results and the data, then I think you start to enter into this whole realm of, of great possibilities. So yes, it's hard. Yes, it's slow. <laughs> yes, technically we have to learn a lot. But the outcome is, has always been worth it for me. It's way better than working for a living. Diane, as always, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. And thank you for joining me today. And thanks for everything that you do here at Brown and Beyond. Rick, it was a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Faculty in Focus, brought to you by the Office of the Provost at Brown University. Our show is edited and produced by Megan Hall, Brown Class of 04. Sound design and theme music is by Tom Van Buskirk, Brown Class of 04. And I'm Richard Locke, Provost of Brown University. <laughs>